boy, a drive in the motor car. Somehow or other, I got through the first term at St. Peter's, and towards the end of December, my mother came over on the paddle boat to take me and my trunk home for the Christmas holidays. Oh, the bliss and the wonder of being with the family once again after all those weeks of fierce discipline. Unless you have been to boarding school when you are very young, it is absolutely impossible to appreciate the delights of living at home. It is almost worth going away because it is so lovely to come back. I could hardly believe that I didn't have to wash in cold water in the mornings, or keep silent in the corridors, or say sir to every grown-up man I met, or use a chamber pot in the bedroom, or get flicked with wet towels while naked in the changing room, or eat porridge for breakfast that seemed to be full of little round lumpy gray sheet droppings, or walk all day long in perpetual fear of the long yellow cane that lay on top of the corner cupboard of the headmaster's study. The weather was exceptionally mild that Christmas holiday, and one amazing morning our whole family got ready to go for our, our first drive in the first motor car we had ever owned. This new motor car was an enormous long black French automobile called a De Dion Bouton, which had a canvas roof that folded back. The driver was to be that 12 years older than me, half-sister, now aged 21, who had recently had her appendix removed. She had received two full half-hour lessons in driving from the man who delivered the car, and in that enlightened year of 1925, this was considered quite sufficient. Nobody had to take a driving test. You were your own judge of competence, and as soon as you felt you were ready to go, off you jolly well went. As we all climbed into the car, our excitement was so intense we could hardly bear it. How fast will it go? we cried out. Will it do 50 miles an hour? It'll do 60, the ancient sister answered. Her tone was so confident and cocky, it should have scared us to death, but it didn't. Oh, let's make it do 60, we shouted. Will you promise to take us up to 60? We shall probably go faster than that, the sister announced, pulling on her driving gloves and tying a scarf over her head in the approved driving fashion of the period. The canvas hood had been folded back because of the mild weather, converting the car into a magnificent open tourer. Up front, there were three bodies in all, the driver behind the wheel, my half-brother, aged 18, and one of my sisters, aged 12. In the back seat, there were four more of us, my mother, aged 40, two small sisters, aged 8 and 5, and myself, aged 9. Our machine possessed one very special feature, which I don't think you see on the cars of today. This was a second windscreen in the back solely to keep the breeze off the faces of the back seat passengers when the hood was down. It had a long center section and two little end sections that could be angled backwards to deflect the wind. We were all quivering with fear and joy as the driver let out the clutch and the great long black automobile leaned forward and stole into motion. Are you sure you know how to do it? We shouted. Do you know where the brakes are? Be quiet, snapped the ancient sister. I've got to concentrate. Down the drive we went and out into the village of Landeff itself. Fortunately, there were very few vehicles on the roads in those days. Occasionally, you met a small truck or a delivery van, and now and again a private car, but the danger of colliding with anything else was fairly remote, so long as you kept the car on the road. The splendid black tour crept slowly through the village, with the driver pressing the rubber bulb of the horn every time we passed a human being, whether it was the busher boy on his bicycle or just a pedestrian strolling on the pavement. Soon we were entering a countryside of green fields and high hedges with not a soul in sight. You didn't think I could do it, did you? cried the ancient sister, turning round and grinning at us all. 
Now you keep your eyes on the road, my mother said nervously. Go faster, we shouted. Go on, make her go faster. Put your foot down. We're only doing 15 miles an hour. Spurred on by her shouts and taunts, the ancient sister began to increase the speed. The engine roared and the body vibrated. The driver was clutching the steering wheel as though it were the, the hair of a drowning man, and we all watched the speedometer needle creeping up to 20, then 25, then 30. We were probably doing about 35 miles an hour when we came suddenly to a sharpest bend in the road. The ancient sister, never having been faced with a situation like this before, shouted, Help! and slammed on the brakes and swung the wheel wildly around. The rear wheels locked and went into a fierce sideways skid, and then, with a marvelous crunch of mud guards and metal, we went crashing into the hedge. The front passengers all shot through the front windscreen, and the back passengers all shot through the back windscreen. Glass, there was no triple X then, flew in all directions, and so did we. My brother and one sister landed on the bonnet of the car. Someone else was catapulted out on the road to the road, and at least one small sister landed in the middle of the hawthorn hedge. But miraculously, nobody was hurt very much, except me. My nose had been cut almost clean off my face as I went through the rear windscreen, and now it was hanging on only by a small, single small thread of skin. My mother disentangled herself from the scrimmage and grabbed a handkerchief from her purse. She clapped the dangling nose back into place fast and held it there. Not a cottage or a person was in sight, let alone a telephone. Some kind of bird started twittering in a tree. Farther down the road, otherwise all was silent. My mother was bending over me in the rear seat and saying, lean back and keep your head still. To the ancient sister, she said, can you get this thing going again? The sister pressed the starter and to everyone's surprise, the engine fired. Back it out of the hedge, my mother said, and hurry. The sister had trouble finding reverse gear. The cogs were grinding against one another with a fearful noise of tearing metal. I've never actually driven it backwards, she admitted at last. Everyone, with the exception of the driver, my mother and me, was out of the car and standing on the road. The noise of the gear wheels grinding against each other was terrible. It sounded as though a lawnmower was being driven over hard rocks. The ancient sister was using bad words and going crimson in the face. But then my brother leaned his head over the driver's door and said, Don't you have to put your foot on the clutch? The harassed driver depressed the clutch pedal and the gears meshed and one second later the great black beast leapt backwards out of the hedge and careened across the road into the hedge on the other side. Try to keep cool, my mother said. Go forward slowly. At last, the shattered motor car was driven out of the second hedge and stood sideways across the road, blocking the highway. A man with a horse and cart now appeared on the scene and the man dismounted from his cart and walked across to her car and leaned over the rear door. He had a big drooping mustache and he wore a small black bowler hat. You're in a fair old mess here, aren't you? He said to my mother. Can you drive a motor car? My mother asked him. Nope, he said, and you're blocking up the old road. I've got a thousand fresh-legged eggs in this cart and I want to get them to market before noon. Get out of the way, my mother told him. Can't you see there's a child in here who's badly injured? One thousand fresh-laid eggs, the man repeated, staring straight at my mother's hand and the blood-soaked handkerchief and the blood running down her wrist. And if I don't get him to market by noon today, I won't be able to sell him till next week. Then they won't be fresh-laid anymore, will they? I'll be stuck with one thousand stale old eggs that nobody wants. I hope they all go rotten, my mother said. Now back that cart out of our way this instant. And to the children standing on the road, she cried out, Jump back into the car. We're going to the doctor. There's glass all over the seats, she shouted. 
Never mind the glass, my mother said. We've got to get this boy to the doctor fast. The passengers crawled back into the car. The man with the horse and cart backed off to a safe distance. The ancient sister managed to straighten the vehicle and get it pointed in the right direction, and then at last the once magnificent automobile tottered down the highway and headed for Dr. Dunbar's surgery in Cathedral Row, Cardiff. I've never driven in a city, the ancient and trembling sister announced. You're about to do so, my mother said. Keep going. Proceeding at no more than four miles an hour all the way, we finally made it to Dr. Dunbar's house. I was hustled out of the car and in through the front door, with my mother still holding the blood-stained handkerchief firmly over my wobbling nose. Good heavens, cried Dr. Dunbar. It's been cut clean off. It hurts, I moaned. He can't go round without a nose for the rest of his life, the doctor said to my mother. It looks as though he may have to, my mother said. Nonsense, the doctor told her. I shall sew it on again. Can you do that? my mother asked him. I can try, he answered. I shall tape it on tight for now, and I'll be up at your house with my assistant within the hour. Huge strips of sticking plaster were strapped across my face to hold the nose in position. Then I was led back into the car, and we crawled the two miles home to Landeff. About a half hour later, I found myself lying upon that same nursery table my ancient sister had occupied some months before for her appendix operation. Strong hands held me down while a mass stuffed with cotton wool was clamped over my face. I saw a hand above me holding a bottle with white liquid in it, and the liquid was being poured onto the cotton wool inside the mask. Once again, I smelled the sickly stench of chloroform and ether, and a voice was saying, breathe deeply, take some nice deep breaths. I fought fiercely to get off that table, but my shoulders were pinned down by the full weight of a large man. The hand that was holding the bottle above my face kept tilting it farther and farther forward, and the white liquid dripped and dripped onto the cotton wool. Blood-red circles began to appear before my eyes, and the circles started to spin round and round until they made a scarlet whirlpool with a deep black hole in the center. And miles away in the distance, a voice was saying, "'That's a good boy. We're nearly there now. We're nearly there. Just close your eyes and go to sleep.' I woke up in my own bed with my anxious mother sitting beside me, holding my hand. "'I didn't think you were ever going to come round,' she said. "'You've been asleep for more than eight hours.' "'Did Dr. Dunbar sew my nose on again?' I asked her. "'Yes,' she said. "'Will it stay on?' "'He says it will. How do you feel, my darling?' "'Sick,' I said. After I had vomited into a small basin, I felt a little better. "'Look under your pillow,' my mother said, smiling. I turned and lifted a corner of of my pillow, and underneath it on the snow-white sheet there lay a beautiful golden sovereign with the head of King George V on its uppermost side.' That's for being brave, my mother said. You did very well. I'm proud of you.